This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. Michael Wesch delivered a powerful keynote presentation at the 10th Annual Information Architecture Summit in Memphis, Tennessee. Michael has been dubbed the explainer by Wired Magazine, a cultural anthropologist exploring the impact of new media on society and culture. After two years studying the impact of writing on a remote Indigenous culture in the rainforest of Papua New Guinea, he has turned his attention to the effects of social media and digital technology on global society. His videos on technology, education, and information have been viewed by millions, translated in over 10 languages, and are frequently featured at international film festivals and major academic conferences worldwide. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. I actually got my start looking at mediated culture in the most sort of bizarre of places in Papua New Guinea. So I'm going to tell you a quick little story about Papua New Guinea and how I got started there. Um, in order to sort of frame everything I'm going to talk about. I'm going to end up talking about YouTube, 4chan, and Twitter, and things like that. But we have to start in New Guinea in order to give us some context for that. <laughs> so, uh, so I first went to New Guinea. This is uh, 1999, was the first time. I, I went there off and on for the past 10 years. And ultimately, I've spent about two, two full years there in the past 10 years. And so to get to the villages where I work, you have to fly into a little airstrip like this, a little grass airstrip, and it takes you about two weeks to get that far because you're usually waiting on little Cessnas and things like that, and ultimately you get here, and then you walk a couple days, and you end up in villages like this. So you're talking about places that have really nothing that we would call media in, in our terms. There's no uh, electricity, there's no internet, and so on. Uh, not even, usually there's not even working radios. So. Uh, very isolated, and there's not even money to speak of, so that these people are mostly subsistence horticulturalists. And here you can see a garden. Uh, they grow lots of sweet potatoes and taro. Um, they raise pigs, so this is a major feast that they would have. They also eat anything that the forest provides them, such as spiders. So after a big storm, uh, the, the rainwater will just wash down the canopy, uh, wash these spiders down from the canopy, and then they'll harvest these and they'll eat these spiders. They'll also eat snakes whenever they get a chance. They'll even eat what's inside the snake. So here you can see they've taken out an animal that was recently eaten by the snake, and so they, they then eat that. And I show you this because this is where my journey really begins. This, this photo was taken about a week after I arrived, and it's about 100 feet from where I was staying, which is right here. And I barely speak the language at this time. And I'll just take you inside the hut here to show you what it looks like. This is what it looks like. These are actually my legs up here. And this is my little sleeping bag. Uh, this little sleeping bag, I used to call it My Little America because at night I would just try to like wrap myself up in this thing and hide myself from the world because there's bugs everywhere and rats and all kinds of stuff. So, um, but of course this is, the, uh, this is the tropics, it's the equator. So in the middle of the night I'd get really hot and the sleeping bag would be off of me and there I would be exposed. And that night after we ate this snake, I was looking around and I noticed that there's all these little holes in the floor, holes in the walls, holes everywhere. And I thought, gosh, a snake could just crawl right in here anytime. And sure enough, that night, I'm wrapped up in my little America. It gets too hot. It's off, sleeping bags off of me. And I wake up in the middle of the night with this, this thing. I can feel this thing across me. It's like this big around, and it's like right across my chest here. So I freak out, and I 
manage to get it with my left hand and I, I throw it off of me, but as I throw it, I roll with it. And so now I, I, I get, manage to get it pinned down with my left arm, with my left hand. And I have it pinned down on the ground like this and I try to get my right arm free so I can pin it down with my right arm, but I can't move my right arm. And this is when I realize I've actually pinned down my own right arm. <laughs> and uh, what had happened was my arm had fallen asleep and it was across me like this. And, and, uh, so there actually was no snake. And at this time, speaking of media, the only thing that I could understand from anybody, I could barely understand the language. The only word I understood was the word they used for me. And the word they used for me was an English word that they had borrowed, which was white man. And so they would just say, blah, 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 white man. And then I would hear just laughter roaring, right? So <laughs> and uh, this was like my primary encouragement to learn the language very quickly and so on. What I realized was that they had no idea who I was. Um, I was just like the white man that they could laugh at and so on. And, but then I started to realize that that was basically true for everybody in these villages. This is a situation in which your entire identity is made in your face-to-face -face relationships with other people. And we have become such a mediated society that we've completely lost sight of what that even means. So, you know, you come to a conference like this and you are instantly displaying to people in numerous ways who you are by the name tag you're wearing, the institution you're associated with, all of that based on a print technology that wouldn't be possible without those little symbols on your name tag. Uh, not to mention your identity cards and all that type of stuff that declare you a U.S. citizen or whatever it might be. Uh, then even your clothes are, are sending a certain message. So even when you walk through the airport, people will be able to identify certain things about you just by the clothes you're wearing. You go to a village like this and you lose all of that. And locally, the people themselves also are primarily negotiating their own identities in these face-to-face -face relationships. I'll give you a few examples of this, which was really brought home to me in the following 10 years since after that first event in a sequence of events that the locals now call, refer to as number talk. What happened about 10 years ago was just after I arrived, uh, the government got serious about running this very remote village or set of series of villages using bureauc bureaucratic paper-based government, right? And so they went in and they actually charted every single village in the area with GPS. They actually carried around a GPS unit, marked down each of the villages, and then they began taking a census in which every house was numbered, every person in the house uh, got their own number as well, and they were able to count the units, and this allowed them to determine how much funding the village would get. And so there's a whole formula for how much funding each village gets. The impact of this was really tremendous in the next 10 years. The first thing that happened was they actually started eliminating their old villages, which look like this, and are actually based on relationships. People, uh, if you're really close to somebody, you would face your door towards them, and if not, uh, you would face it away from them. And instead, you can see they arrange their houses almost you know, sort of by the book in a linear format, and each of these houses is actually numbered just like the census book. And if you go there today and you ask them, why did you build your village like this, they'll give you a one-word answer, census. Uh, and then you can see how it maps onto the census here. And then during the census exercise itself, a really interesting thing happened. They were having a really hard time getting people to say their names. They would go around and they would say, what's your name? And people would be all confused. They didn't know what their name was. Now that sounds like crazy. How could that be? But if you think about all the names that you have, you probably are referred to by at least 10 names, if not more. And imagine if somebody then came to you and 
you had no idea which one was your real name and said, what's your real name? They actually would go to the, some of the people there and they'd say, what's your name? And they would, they would say the word for mother or father or brothers, because that's what people call them in the village. And then suddenly they're, they're like, no, no, what's your name? And they, they just get totally confused by that whole idea. So they ended up coming up with another, they adopted another English phrase called census name. And now if you go there and you ask people what your name is, they'll ask you, they'll say, you mean my census name? You know, and so that's where that comes from. Um, meanwhile, people refer to this as number talk because their idea is that it's numbers that talk to the state. And this becomes like a certain kind of mediated reality, right? And they try to cook the numbers in a way. And, uh, but this goes on to even more levels in terms of how print and the book were actually kind of mediating their society. This is what a dispute looked like prior to the incoming of this government bureaucracy. You can see what happens is when there's a dispute, everybody meets in an open area, everybody talks about it, everybody has a chance to talk and so on. But in the new era of print, uh, they have an actual law book in which there's a series of laws and when people uh, have a conflict, they're taken into the courthouse and they're measured against this static group of, of uh, laws. And this turns everything quite dramatically. Suddenly the focus is on the individual and their relation to a piece of paper and their relation to the letter of the law as opposed to their relationship with the people they're actually in conflict with. So the whole point of all this is to say that media are not just tools, they're not just means of communication, but in fact they mediate relationships. And when media change, relationships change. And that makes today an especially interesting time. So Marshall McLuhan once said, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. And so today you look around and you see a Flickr here and a Twitter there, and you have to recognize that this is actually a new way of relating emerging. So, I'll just give you a, a quick little tale from the new mediascape, and then I'll go into uh, some, some more uh, stuff about YouTube in particular, and then some stuff on Twitter and, and 4chan. So here's a little story from the new mediascape. This is like the million dollar story. Okay, so the reason why it's the million dollar story is million dollars is what it costs to make a 30 second commercial spot for the Super Bowl, which is a big event, uh, obviously. And so Doritos had an idea of how they could leverage the new mediascape to make it a lot cheaper. So they just created a contest. And they basically just allowed people to upload videos of their own little 30-second spot. And this ended up being the winning commercial. And when they interviewed these guys about how they made it and what was involved, uh, they found out that it cost them $12.79 to create the commercial, which is roughly the cost of three bags of Doritos that they had to break during the filming of it. Um, it was very successful. It was the rated fourth by USA Today on their ad meter. So in terms of like affecting the audience, it was fourth. So it did very well, despite its low price. Uh, but it turns out it's $2.6 million to actually air the commercial, which brings the total cost to... <laughs> <laughs> so now the interesting thing about this, though, is that you know, they, ask them, they ask these advertisers, why do you spend so much money on this 30-second spot? And they say, basically, it's water cooler talk. We want we want to be the thing that people are talking about the next day after the Super Bowl. Well, the next day after the Super Bowl, if you check the blogosphere, the number one video in the blogosphere actually costs zero dollars to produce. And I know that because that was actually the video that I made that was mentioned here in, in the intro. And for those of you who haven't seen it, this, this is just a, I'll just show you a quick like 30 seconds of it here. It's this one where the, you know, it's sort of like a history of, uh, Oh, thanks. 
it's like a history of, of digital text, you know, it, starting with written text and, you know, what it looks like in terms of written text, but then the changes that are brought about as digital text comes into the scene. And I'm just speeding it up here so that you don't have to watch it all. But um, the basic idea here is that uh, there's some things I'll cover a little bit later in this talk, but um, we're talking about blogs, YouTube, tagging, uh, Wikipedia, and so on are all changing things in such a way that the web is no longer linking information, but it's about linking people. And this then means that we're going to have to rethink a whole lot of things in our culture. And this is all actually inspired by my work in New Guinea, uh, which I think surprises people, and, but that's what this is really all about. And that's why I thought that you'd have to rethink things, not just like governance and privacy and commerce, which I think everybody thinks of, but also love, family, and ourselves. Nothing you say can... We'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so the interesting story behind this, though, is not just the sort of the, move, the video itself, but what happened afterwards. So, the interesting thing about this is it was made in the basement of this house in the middle of Kansas. So here you have a video that actually competed with 2.6 million dollar massive productions uh, and it was created in the basement of this house in Kansas. And it was done in collaboration with a guy in Cote d'Ivoire, in, in the Ivory Coast, because he had uploaded the music that you heard there with Creative Commons license. So we were actually collaborating across time and space. And this was then taken on Friday. I uploaded it on a Wednesday, and you can see by Friday at 253 views. And the reason why there's a screenshot of this is because I was just blown away that more than 200 people had seen this. And, <laughs> and in anthropology, you know, that's a really big deal when more than 200 people read your work. So <laughs> I, actually, uh, I actually sent this to my department head, and she was thrilled. Like, and we had, a, we had a party that night. She was telling everybody. She was like, you won't believe it. <laughs> And then this is by the next day, this is Saturday, and you can see it had over a thousand views. And this is, you know, we normally think about user-generated content, and that's what this is, but what's really interesting is what happened next that showed me that there was a lot more going on here. And that was, the reason why it was sort of growing exponentially was that it had been dug. You know, dig is a site where people can give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. The good stuff sort of rises to the top, literally sort of gets dug up to the top. And uh, here you can see it was rising right to the front page of dig. And dig is just one example of what you might call user-generated filtering. And so there you can see it on the top front page. Delicious, of course, another. Uh, it was also floating around delicious. And you can see on the, the top two links there for most popular Web 2.0 links that day uh, were from delicious. So this is a situation where people are just going to the video, tagging it with Web 2.0, anthropology, whatever it might be, and actually sort of organizing the web as they do it. So this is what you might call user-generated organization. But what's great about this, this, I mean, that's nifty in itself, but what's interesting about that is that as it's being tagged, a lot of you in this room are probably following tags yourself on Delicious. So you might be following the tag Web 2.0, like a lot of people are, and then this, that will instantly come to your homepage the instant that somebody tags it. So this then you might call user-generated distribution. And so what we have then, what you see emerging here is basically an alternative to the sort of the massive mass media machine that we've existed with for decades here in the US uh, is now has like sort of a valid competitor or a valid alternative in the user generated uh, landscape here. And so then it goes throughout the blogosphere and 
you know, th this is where humans and machines are actually interacting without knowing it because every time somebody links it in the blogosphere, it's getting counted by Technorati. That's what creates the top 20 list that you see on biowarevideochart.com as well as on Technorati. And here you can see it was, uh, this is, this is, it was number four and this is uh, Super Bowl Sunday morning. So I woke up and it was number four and I was just like blown away by this. So my wife and I just sat down and we just started hitting refresh, refresh, refresh. <laughs> and we were really worried about the viral videos from the Super Bowl coming in that night, you know. So we thought, oh, if it can only get to number one before, you know, before the Super, before the Super Bowl. And here you can see this is about noon that day. It actually was number one. And this is then the next day after the Super Bowl and you can see not only was it number one, but it was well above the others. And in fact, two through 20 almost entirely are Super Bowl commercials. Um, so this is what you might call user-generated ratings. And this also works with Google, of course, because every time you make a link on Google, it's just sort of accidental collaboration with machines that's going <coughs> on all around us right now. And this is what's driving something that can be made in a basement in Kansas to have millions of views uh, be commented on thousands of times. And creating then this sort of alternative mediascape. So the question then is, you know, as you look at this sort of interconnected mediascape that creates all this collaboration in multiple ways. So this is just like a month after it was created. Uh, you can see it was translated into like 12 languages that spread it worldwide. And the interesting thing about all this is that at the center of this user-generated landscape is us, which means that this is not just a technological revolution. This is a cultural revolution. So that's why I said that we had to rethink all these things. Now, there's a certain bias to media. Now, people talk about media bias in terms of Fox News and that kind of stuff. But I'm not talking about content. I'm talking about the medium itself. And there's a long history of studies of this now going back uh, four and five decades, a very serious study. Uh, but even going back much further than that, there's and we've come to realize that the, the biases are things like this. So there's an intellectual bias to different media. So for example, just, just for a real like basic example, take the example of like communicating with uh, smoke signals versus communicating with a book. And obviously there's going to be an intellectual bias. You can't sort of recount Plato using smoke signals, right? So that's a very basic bias of media. There's emotional biases. You can't convey the same emotions in different media. That's why when you have something really important to tell somebody, you'll often be, think very carefully about what medium you're going to use. There's spatial and temporal biases. We saw that in New Guinea, uh, just in the sense of face-to-face -face communication is spatially biased towards how far your voice can reach and temporally biased towards the now because it doesn't last other than how people remember it and carry it on, whereas print has a long temporal bias, right? Because it stays static and over a long time. And spatially, it can travel over long distances as well. So these create certain biases of the media. Then there's sensory biases. Some, some media are visual, others are uh, auditory, and so on. There's political biases in the sense that some media are accessible to some and not accessible to others. There's social biases in that every medium sort of creates a social scene around it in terms of how you engage it, how you receive it, how you create it. And this leads then ultimately, this is where it gets interesting, that when you add all that up, there's actually metaphysical biases to media. They actually make you think about space and time and the world differently, especially as they start to seep into our institutions. And that then leads to different understandings of what information is, what knowledge is, and so on. These are epistemological biases. 
Here's a nice summary of, of this. Lee Rainey uh, was talking about the effects of new media. And this is a basic summary of what he had to say. He said, just for example, you have the role of experts challenged by new, new voices enabled by more open platforms for the dissemination of ideas. You have new institutions emerge to deal with the social, cultural, and political changes. There's a struggle to revise social and legal norms, especially around the changing environment of intellectual property. We all have seen this happening. It's happening all around us. Concepts of identity and community multiply and transform. New forms of language arise. We've seen all of this recently, but of course he was actually talking about the printing press. So this is just like one example uh, going back 500 years, and here we are today in this situation. And the question is, what are the biases of this media environment? How, are, how, are, how is it changing us? And the great question for you guys, because you guys are right on the front lines of actually creating this environment, is how can we create an environment that creates the types of community that we want to create, and the types of people we want to create, and so on. So I started studying this new media environment here by my, just watching my own students. So I have this great sort of research lab, right? And that's just in my classroom. And uh, you sort of get at this sort of sideways. You can't just come directly at them and start asking them questions about how they use media and all that stuff. That's interesting stuff, but it doesn't get at the real changes that are happening and, and sort of the bigger picture stuff. So if any of you do ethnography, you know how you kind of have to go at it sideways. So here's a series of questions that was very revealing to me that don't, aren't going at it directly, but are still very interesting. So here's, here's question one. How many of you do not actually like school? And <laughs> I got over half of them raise their hands to that question. And then I say, how many do not like learning? And of course, you get no hands. So then we have this problem because we've created this institution that's actually designed for learning, and yet the people who like learning don't like the institution. It's actually true with... Um, professors as well. <laughs> so, uh, so then there's other problems, right? The students are Facebooking through their classes. They bring their laptop to class, but they're not working on class stuff. And this was actually a spur-of-the-moment thing. Just as we were taking this picture, her IM popped up. And so obviously, this is a common practice for her. Um, they buy $100 textbooks they never open. They pay for class, but often don't show up. We did a survey and found that they complete about 49% of the readings assigned to them and they find that only 26% are relevant to their life. So there's this huge disconnect in our schools. And the question is, what is this all about? So here's the interesting thing. Okay, so you look at this room here. Everybody's sort of tuned out and dazed and so on. And this same, this same group of people that we might say are having this problem of significance show up in this context like this. You know, so like we have a camera on them, and you know, there's the contrast. So I was looking for an answer as to why this would be, and I found the perfect quote for this. And here it is. It says, what we are encountering is a panicky and almost hysterical attempt to escape from the deadly anonymity of modern life. And the prime cause is not vanity, but the craving of people who feel their personality sinking lower and lower into the world's indistinguishable atoms to be lost in a mass civilization. I don't know if anybody recognizes that. That's actually from 1926. And so there's this, there's this long history of this sort of disconnect, this feeling of insignificance in the world. And uh, he was actually talking about city life. And adding to that, uh, you might say that there's sort of a, we could do a history of insignificance here. It's not just about city life, but the assembly line in which people started to feel like automatons, sort of anonymous uh, functionaries in this big machine. Uh, 
and then this allowed us to expand and build these massive suburbia, suburbia uh, areas here. And uh, we're so disconnected, we're only connected by roads and, of course, TVs and radios. And then the TV actually then becomes the home of our culture. Like, all significant conversations about our culture occur right here on the TV. And so, therefore, it's not just the conversations of the culture, but the conversations of significance that happen here. And it's a one-way conversation. And you have to be on TV to have a voice. You have to be on TV to be significant. And so, obviously, you're ready. You know, you're like, just let me on TV. Show, remind me that I'm real. Something like that. Now, uh, by the 1990s, we were just bombarded with imagery like this. 1980s, actually. This is, this is like the MTV world, right? And every one of these images is posted from MTV. Just a barrage of, uh, of logos. And this is actually my journal from when I was 17 in 1992. <laughs> and, uh, you can see I was very much part of the MTV generation. And if, if you guys remember, um, you know, everybody was talking about the MTV generation back then. And it was things like they have short attention spans because they can't last through a four-minute video. They're very materialistic, and we were. I mean, we spent so much money uh, as, a, as an age group. We're narcissistic, and one of the theories about why we're narcissistic is because all that stuff that was being thrown at us from the TV was designed for us. And that's a very flattering thing when you're bombarded with million dollar images. It's not, you know, it costs $3.6 million to produce 30 seconds of TV and it's all for me. You know, it's very flattering. <laughs> and so, end up being, you know, this sort of narcissism emerges. But on the other hand, we're also not easily impressed because we're just bombarded with all this stuff all the time. Um, there's this great line about this. Uh, in the midst of a fabulous array of historically unprecedented and utterly mind-boggling stimuli, whatever. <laughs> that's from Thomas de Zengotiza. Uh, that's a really great book called Mediated and highly recommend it to anybody. Um, so I actually, in the midst of trying to figure out where we're going, I decided to do a brief history of whatever. So I started mining the literature, you know, doing like Google searches to find out like when the word whatever was used and how it's changed over time and things like that. And basically what I found is that pre-1960, you basically have whatever is generally, it's just generally means like that's what I meant. Like it's sort of like you say something and then somebody repeats it back to you but in different words and then you just say whatever, that's what I meant. You know, but that's all it meant. By the 19, late 60s though, it started to become like the, it was like the whatever man series, like, uh, like sequence, you know, <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like, I don't care, whatever. And just sort of like an indifference started to emerge. And of course, this is at the beginning of TV and especially uh, beginnings of color TV. Um, and so then by the 1990s, though, this total bombardment of imagery and you end up with this MTV generation and you have not only whatever, uh, but also the indifferent meh emerges. And uh, this is where the Simpsons clips come in. Um, this is 1992. This is sometimes some people claim this is the first use of the word meh. Nothing you say can upset us. We're the MTV generation. We feel neither highs nor lows. Really? What's it like? Eh. <laughs> yeah, but you can you can tell it wasn't it wasn't quite a meh, right? It was like more like eh, you know. So then this is 2001. They really spell it out. Uh, would you like to go to? Blackerland! Meh. But the TV gave me the impression that... We said meh. M-E-H. Meh. <laughs> yeah. So it's, 
it's after that that uh, on uh, like on forums all over the internet, mess starts to appear. I mean, it started to appear in the no, 1992, 1993, but it really started going up in 2001. And in fact, HarperCollins just last year ad admitted meh into their dictionary, so it's now official. Uh, 1992, back to the MTV generation, uh, this was the real anthem of the day, right? Kurt Cobain and, and uh, I find it hard, it's hard to find, oh well, whatever, never mind. And it's like the perfect sort of anthem of, of our generation. Uh, Neil Postman in 84 said something really appropriate here. He said, the public has adjusted to incoherence and been amused into indifference. And uh, again, from Kurt Cobain, I feel stupid and contagious. Here we are now, entertain us. And a lot of faculty actually repeat this line when they see this. You know, and they, they get this sense, like, like that's what the students are waiting for. Um, so, you know, I mentioned earlier that this barrage of imagery is actually very flattering, right? And it creates a sense of narcissism. And so even as we're sort of, sort of bombarded into passivity, you know, there's no way to act on the images that are being thrown at us, we're definitely ready to get out there. And so in 1992, the real world starts to emerge and, and reality TV starts to take off. And that sets the ground for what you see in the American Idol frenzy today. People just desperate and ready to get on screen, to have some sort of significance. And they really think that they deserve to be there. And so by the late 90s to the present, there's a new transition in whatever, and it's become much more sort of self-focused and I'm the most important person on the planet, whatever, you don't matter, I matter kind of thing. And uh, you see that in, not in The Simpsons, but on South Park. So here's like a and now famous one. kids who are out of control on the Mary Poppins show. Our next mother is Leanne Cartman. Her son claims to be the most out of control kid in the world and says there's nothing his stupid mom can do about it. Well, let's bring him out. Here's Eric Cartman. I'll do what I want. So you might have missed it. He said, whatever, I'll do what I want. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then this was, uh, I think, a, a song that's really gotten popular on YouTube lately, but actually started on MTV. Whatever. And again, Kiki, she was all like, and I'm like, whatever. You see the like the self-righteousness, right? There's a new self-righteousness. She comes up to me and she's all like, hey, aren't you that dude? I'm like, yeah, whatever. So later, I'm, I'm at the pool hall and this girl comes up, she's all like, uh, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Alright, so you get the, the added narcissism to it all. And Gene Twenge recently published a book called Generation Me, which sort of tried to capture all of this, and you can see the, the title up there, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before. Because as they've rushed on the stage, they think that they deserve to be there, and then when they're not, they're all like shocked, like, you know, like, are you serious? I mean, if you guys watch American Idol, it's crazy, like just all these people who think they totally deserve to be in the spotlight, and then they're shocked when they're not, and they're in tears, and, and so on. Now, this is actually very serious, though. Uh, here's a whole series of questions that will really bring it home. It's not just about sort of the play on American Idol and so on, but ask yourself these questions. Ask yourself, imagine asking yourself these questions now versus in the mid-80s. What steps do you plan to take to reduce the conflict in the Middle East, or the rates of inflation, crime, or unemployment? What do you plan to do about NATO, OPEC, the CIA, etc.? And this is from Neil Postman. He says, I shall take the liberty of answering for you. You plan to do nothing. 
And so we live in a world in which we're sort of impotent, right? So like we, we want to be engaged and we want, we're sort of following the news with all this rigor and yet ultimately we're impotent in our actions. We have nothing to do. So meanwhile, there's something in the air that maybe is trans, trans, uh, like transforming what you're seeing. And that something in the air is actually the digital artifacts of roughly 1.4 billion people communicating, right? And it's, it's actually, it's literally in the air. It's floating in the air all around you. Or at least you can sort of grab it with your cell phone or your laptop or whatever. And when you add it all up, you know, there's big numbers I could throw at you. 70 exabytes will be produced this year. That's 70 billion gigabytes. It's more than the entire collection of the Library of Congress. A lot more. In fact, it's 518,000 libraries worth. And, you know, meanwhile, we're testing our students like this, you know, when there's all this information floating around. Um, it's the equivalent of 12,000 gigabytes per person. It's the equivalent of a stack of books 350 feet tall. And yet, less than 0.01% of it will be on paper. So that was just all a metaphor, you know, when I'm talking about how many books it would be. And that's important to recognize it as a metaphor because digital information is different and you guys are all trying to come to terms with that and what it means and what you can create out of these differences. So uh, Marshall McLuhan once said, we look at the present through a rear view mirror, we march backwards into the future. And just, you know, there's lots of great examples we could bring up of this. One of them is just this idea that here we are on the information superhighway. Notice we have to use metaphor constantly to understand what's going on because it's a new, new thing. So here we are in the information superhighway looking into the rearview mirror and we translate all the data that's coming in through our screens into something we call a desktop, which is a metaphor. Uh, we put folders on that desktop, again a metaphor. Uh, we put documents inside the folders and so on. And it's only recently that we realized that folder even was a metaphor. I think most people didn't really get it, that it was a metaphor until they saw tagging. And then they thought, oh, you can do this differently. And it's not that we're going to give up folders, because folders are actually a great technology. It's, and that, they're actually an invention, too. You know, they're not that old themselves, in the phys even in the physical space. But it's still, uh, you know, when we get sort of blinded by the rearview mirror, we don't see the new possibilities. In terms of the web, of course, there was the web pages era. You know, so in the early days of the web, I think probably most of the people in this room remember a certain frustration with the creation of web pages or even like working for somebody who wanted you to create a web page and very much like really had the image of, of a, pa a page of paper and you were to create something like that. The response to this was to create more, you know, things that were more dynamic. Does anybody remember the DHTML days when, yeah, when it was like a really big deal? I'll just zoom in a little bit here. But look at, look at the new metaphor that was being brought in. It was said, with the advent of DHTML, web pages are one step closer to its cousin TV in terms of special effects. So the new metaphor was like, let's copy TV. You know, at first it was let's copy print, now let's copy TV. And uh, you can see down here at the bottom, that these things would like make, here, here, make, make your images fly, light up, turn static, all without paying the cost of slow downloading time. So this is what people were after. But the problem with this code, it was really complex, and it often went into one document. It, was, it wasn't like separated into multiple documents. And so form and content became inseparable, and it was basically almost impossible to upload content without knowing a whole lot. And it, just even updating the content was really difficult, because you know, you'd have to go into the code to actually update anything. So Tim Berners-Lee was really upset by this, and by the late 90s, he gave a series of talks, not just one, but the first one was December 97. He said, look, it's not supposed to be a glorified television channel, because he'd actually set it up so that people could share information and this kind of thing. 
So he, they thought, you know, he thought that people had really missed it. And you know, if you click on one of these, you could really get a sense of uh, the problems. Because uh, here, I'll just go into special document effects. And you can see it has like IE on the side. What that means is it only works with IE. And then you have to put this other script in there that would actually tell it, like if it's not IE, then do this. And you're basically building like two and sometimes even three different websites all in one document. Really complex stuff. Um, so, but that whole, these browser wars ultimately led to a new dedication in standards. And the reason why I use uh, the Firefox emblem is because towards the end of the 90s, Netscape and, and I, IE were like in this race, basically to adapt themselves to DHTML, to have more effects and all this type of stuff, at the expense of all standards. So CSS wasn't even, even really adopted, even though it was created many years earlier, it wasn't truly adopted because they were racing to accept more and more DHTML. So Netscape actually scrapped everything, rebuilt from scratch, and that became the base of what is now Firefox. And what happened then is that with forms separated from content, you no longer needed to know complicated code to create content for the web. In that, those standards, once the standards were in place, CSS was alive, XML was able to grow at that point, and suddenly you had this very simple form and this is from Blogger, of course, and you know, anybody can fill out this form and hit the publish button. And I've timed this before. It takes like 19 seconds to set up a blog these days. And you know, it's just that easy to, easy to create your own website now. So of course, it's no surprise that there's 184 million blogs today, and that's almost 184 million more than there were in 2003, if you're keeping track. And I suppose it's because we're ready. You know, like, we're just like desperate to come on and participate in the culture that we're a part of. So, here we are in this new mediascape. And I want to make a big point here, and that is that the medium shapes the message. So as we look back at this, each one of these is a different type of community with different ways of relating to each other and so on. And the reason why I put this in the, in the blogger uh, format here is because blogger itself was a big sort of aha moment on the web in that it had just a single box. You know, the early blogs uh, first off, you had to know HTML if you're doing really early blogging. And then there was a few platforms that emerged, but those early platforms usually had a title space, and then a link space, and then a, and then a comment space. And so the early blogs were actually commenting on material that was already out on the web because of, you know, you're sort of required to put this little uh, link in the link space. But Blogger did something different. They just said, we're just going to give you an empty box. You can do whatever you want with it. And that led to the proliferation of all these different types of of uh, communications on blogs. So the medium shapes the message, it shapes the conversation, it shapes the possibilities then for community, for identity construction, and ultimately for self-awareness. So that the medium, the media that you guys create, the sort of platforms that you guys create for people to connect on, are actually shaping uh, really profound things in people's lives. So this is where things will get interesting. We're gonna jump in here and just kind of look around in this new mediascape to see how different media shape um, the way we connect with each other today. So first we'll jump into YouTube. Uh, some of you may have seen some of these clips before. Um, first off, we'll start off. This is just a quick tour of what's on YouTube. So first off, it's not just young people, right? I mean, we have, here's 92-year-old Irving Fields singing about YouTube. But the most common videos on YouTube are actually home videos. So about 33% of videos are just 
are just people uploading stuff from their family and just sharing these videos. This is where it gets fun, right? People start remixing this stuff. This is obviously like a, a hip-hop remix of the thing. And these are done just by amateurs because it's actually that easy to do. An even better example of this though, this is actually a free demo version of this Fruity Loop software that you can get online. And this is DeAndre uh, Cortez Way, April 2007, creates this little riff along with this dance. You guys may have heard this before. Post this to YouTube and to MySpace. And within months, everybody around the country is doing this dance. These actually, these are prisoners in the Philippines. These are, this is an MIT professor and some graduate students who they, they study participatory culture, you know. These are high school teachers. And then there's all these remixes, too. This is the Harry Potter version. Here's the Lion King version. Simpson. Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> SpongeBob. And just goes on and on. So by August, then the major sort of record labels are onto this, and they decide to buy Soldier Boy and make this video. Soldier Boy, what in the heck is that dance? And the video actually sort of mocks their own kind of cluelessness in the new media scape, right? So you'll see the the imagery here showing how the video spread, and then ultimately finally found its way to these record executives. You'll see the use of cell phones and so on. But what really gets me excited about YouTube is another aspect of it, and that's that about 10,000 videos a day are actually addressed to the YouTube community. These are just people like getting on their webcam and talking to each other. And this uh, is really kind of a unique form of community. Hi, everybody. Yo, Swift Cry Job, Monkey Dude 1212 here. YouTube, this is Powers. So, me and uh, about 15 students have you know, looking at been uh, and getting involved in the YouTube community. There's uh, Rebecca Roth uh, from 2007. And she just immediately we started coming, into in, uh, coming up with insights into the YouTube community. Here's what Rebecca uh, was displaying. This is really cool. Yeah, I had a mirror right here. Shit. 
show you guys, but, oh, here it is. This is what I'm talking to. Not you, this. Well, you, but this. I'm talking to you, but for the time being, I don't know who you are. And so, we started really thinking carefully about what it means to create community through a webcam and then through a screen. So everything is literally screened in this community, right? And we started thinking about what that means and uh, came up with a, a series of insights about what it means for identity and self-awareness and so on. Um, here's one. And you know, you know other people are going to be observing you, but they're not right at the second that you're making your video. So you're more yourself. So this is Marshall McLuhan talking about recognition and how it, it applies well to YouTube, even though he's not talking we about it. We live in the world of the instant replay. Around the planet, all the events are not only being recorded, but replayed. And the amazing thing about the replay is that it offers the means of recog, recognition. The first time is cognition, the second time is recognition. And the recognition is even deeper. I decided to make a blog not only for myself before anyone who cares to watch. Definitely is my transition. And um, I'll be able to look back and I suppose you will too to see, you know, how far, if at all, I've come. So replay offers a deeper level of awareness than the, the first play. Well, we had, to, you know, been getting into some very large matters about the effects of this new environment, this new electric environment on man and his awareness of himself. I guess that's what makes me so uncomfortable talking on camera. It's just like, right now I'm looking at my face and like, good God. Because <sighs> when I think of myself, I guess I don't really think of myself the way I appear to other people. <laughs> Which is, yeah, young, naive. Oh, she's so cute. Cute. <laughs> so you can see really like new types of uh, self-awareness emerging. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But there's also, you know, not just while you're creating the videos, then there's this other side where you're watching the videos and there's certain anonymity <laughs> in watching because people you're watching can't see you and this leads to some interesting effects. First off, Lev Grossman once said that some of the comments on YouTube make you weep for the future of humanity, just for the spelling alone. <laughs> Never mind the obscenity and the naked hatred. And I'll show you an example of this. It's just a pretty random example here. Uh, you know, the comment comes back, douchebags, you suck. Um, this is responded by wingman8788, you guys are so gay, it sucks. QWERTYU121 says, what the fuck are you talking about? FreckyGirl114 says, YouTube comments make me angry, grr. And then QWERTYU responds, then don't comment on YouTube, you shit stay. <laughs> but, so there's this anonymity and physical distance and the rare and ephemeral dialogue creates hatred as a public performance, but it also creates a space where people have the freedom to experience humanity, their co-humanity, without fear or anxiety, as you'll see here. It's slightly voyeuristic, you know? And um, it allows you to watch other people without staring at them or making them uncomfortable 
because they don't see you watching them. You can just watch their videos. So it's almost like this state of aesthetic arrest where you really connect with people. And you know, in our society, uh, we kind of have this cultural inversion or cultural tension, you might say. On the one hand, we really uh, we have a lot of individualism, independence, and commercialization all around us. And yet we seek then the opposites, right? So we're just saturated with individualism and independence and commercialization. And therefore, we want community relationships and authenticity. And this becomes a certain tension. And in reality, it turns out we want sort of both of these or some balance of these. And these are constantly in tension. Now, uh, what you see in new media a lot is that people want to find connections, you know, bridging their isolated lives. But they also see these connections as constraints on their individualism, on their independence. So ultimately, they want connection without constraint. That's like the, the ultimate. And YouTube actually offers this possibility, as you'll see here. It's just amazing to me how powerful this this medium is. I mean, I'm just I'm sitting I'm sitting in my living room talking to a camera. My God, the interaction—it's unbelievable. So get you in the mood to so feel like, oh, this is how it's done. It's casual. We just talk to the camera. Put that there, see if that helps. I gotta figure this thing out eventually. Just uh, came by to say, uh, came by, what do you mean came by? I didn't come by, I'm sitting right here. January is a hard month for me. Right now, I should be preparing for my, the birth of my son, but I'm not, but you guys already know. Hi, Mel. I watched your video and uh, sorry I'm running behind on my schedule here. I was listening to it and I felt my tears coming. This is a big fucking experiment in putting myself out. We're all learning from each other and about ourselves. And that's what I think fucking YouTube should be about. Thank you guys. So, so that's, that's like a little brief ver version of like how the, the medium of YouTube affects our self-awareness, our ways that we negotiate identity and community and so on. And then you think about something like Twitter, just as a counterexample, and think about what you're doing in those 140 characters, right? So one, one version of what you're doing is life casting. And the nice thing about Twitter is it's always with you. You know, you can text to it from your cell phone. And that means it's very different than than what we see in YouTube. It's very different than a lot of other media that we are familiar with throughout our lives. And so you can actually like sort of life cast your life out there. Uh, Jay Rosen likes to think of it instead as mind casting, or actually he hates life casting in which you tell people about brushing your teeth. Instead, suggests that we actually sort of have uh, quality content out there. And that's what he calls mind casting. Uh, uh, Lisa Reichelt has this great idea that, in fact, what we're doing is creating ambient intimacy, that these little details of our lives are sort of connecting us. Even, so even while you're sitting here, you might get buzzed with a little Twitter update, and you can check it, and it'll say, you know, just woke the kids up, you know, or something like that. And you're kind of ambiently connected then with uh, your family, even while you're sitting here in this room. And, but what's really interesting is when all these updates start to line up, Laura Fitton uh, has this great quote about this. She says, in an age of awareness, perhaps the person you see most clearly is yourself. Because you end up having this record. If you just go to your own Twitter page, you have this, your own little record, all written in little 140 character little blips 
about your life and you see yourself back to yourself as you present yourself to other people because this is a very public space. And so it's a very interesting mode of self-awareness. And there's one other idea floating around out there from Teresa Synth that you're actually becoming a micro-celebrity. You're managing your micro-celebrity-ness, whatever you might want to say. And this is actually true for everybody. This isn't just people who have, you know, tons, thousands of followers and, and follow very few people. This is, this is really true for everybody in that most people who are on Twitter end up having several people following them. Maybe it's only five, maybe it's ten, whatever. But you'll have people following you who you don't know and, or you just barely know. And in a sense then, when you use Twitter, you're sort of releasing like press releases of yourself out to these people. Uh, everybody in a sense is famous, has that sort of weird relationship with others where they know you and you don't know them. And so that's, that's kind of what Twitter can do. Now, here's where things get really interesting is, is uh, in this world called 4chan. How many people go to 4chan? Is there anybody who, okay, there's a couple. So this is a really great, interesting place. <laughs> okay, so we're actually gonna zoom in here on the random board. What 4chan is, is it's just a image-based bulletin board or an image board. Um, the field where you upload your content looks like this. And you can see there's name, email, subject, comment, and then you upload a file. And it ends up looking like this. Now, um, one interesting thing about this is on the B uh, forum, this is where the medium becomes interesting. They actually have basically no rules for posting and including you don't have to use a name at all. You don't, you don't have to use your name. You can change your name each time you post. You don't stay signed in and registered. So this is a very different type of thing than on Twitter where you have sort of a fixed identity. And it's also very different than on YouTube where your identity is basically uh, you know, designated by your face and so on. Uh, so here, here you have the basic comment field. You end up with a little, little banter like this. So like the forum is called B. So here's somebody showing up and they say, is this B? And then somebody responds, no, this is Patrick. Say, wait, is this B? It says, no, this is Patrick. And it keeps going and going. And <laughs> this is actually from SpongeBob. And it keeps going. Uh, this then, this, it just keeps going and going and going. Like, I feel this. And uh, this is the type of banter you get. And so B and uh, uh, 4chan itself sort of becomes this interesting world where everybody's anonymous. And so they actually become sort of a collective uh, known as anonymous and also each individual is also known as anonymous. And this becomes like, this, this, it becomes like the primordial ooze from which so much of internet culture is born because it's a very creative space. Think about when you're at your most creative is usually when you sort of let go of your identity, right? And you sort of, I mean, usually you're drunk. You know, you sort of like forget, <laughs> you kind of forget who you are and then you're like this enormous creativity comes out, great jokes, really funny stuff. Well, 4chan's almost always like that. And so they have a, uh, they started posting pictures of cats with funny sayings on them. And this would tend to happen on Saturdays. So they started calling this Catterday and Catterdays were born. And a lot of you have probably heard of this because they're the little cats, which you see all over the place. There's now a whole website dedicated to them at ICanHasCheeseburger.com. Um, but here's, it's Catterday. They, you know, they have a whole series of, and, and it, <laughs> I put up, I tried to select ones that, these, that kind of represents the type of humor that you would see on this site. Now think about this, this is really interesting. 
There's also, <laughs> I'm glad you guys all know what that is. I didn't want to show it. <laughs> so, but if you don't know what it is, just look it up. And, or not, or not. <laughs> yeah. And now, what's interesting is that, you know, this is totally anonymous, right? So you, when people post, you don't even know who they are. And so they have this whole language that's emerged to determine in-group and out-group. And it looks a little bit like this. And it, when it gets really deep, it looks like this. And that's the same thing that I just put up. Right? And so there's all these new languages emerging. Um, let's see, I think this would be a good time to show this. <laughs> this is, uh, they, they have all these shared memes and things that, that go around. And so one of them is, uh, they have this great quote from Dragon Ball Z, which you guys may have heard before. You get a sense of who's visiting the forum by the memes that they have. say about his power level? It's over 9,000! What? 9,000? Okay. Now, what's interesting about that then is like whenever people ask them like, who are you and how many do you, how many people are in Anonymous, they always say over 9,000. Like, it, when, anytime anybody asks for a quantity of anything, they say over 9,000. And then they, they go out to other people's forums and other people's blogs and they troll there, right? So they call it trolling, where they go out and they basically say these little obscure little things or really outrageous things to basically get a rise out of people. So in one of the most famous examples recently, uh, they went to a forum on uh, sort of child predators on Oprah and they left a comment there and Oprah responded here. Let me read you something that was posted on our message board from someone who claims to be a member of a known pedophile network. It said this, he doesn't forgive, he does not forget his group has over 9,000 penises and they're all those so, so she's like very serious about this, right? <laughs> and of course, the people at 4chan, they call themselves B-tards because the, the, the place is called B and so they call themselves B-tards. They just go crazy with them. I want you to know they're working on and they have systematic ways of hurting children. And it just goes on and on. <laughs> there's, there's hundreds of those online if you want to look at those. Uh, so they, they come up with these great lines. Uh, you know, they're really, they're actually like sort of in that sort of primordial ooze. There's all sorts of insights there about the nature of internet culture itself. And so here they state, we are anonymous. We cook your meals. We haul your trash. We connect your calls. We drive your ambulances. We deliver your mail. We are everyone and we are no one. And then they go on here, united is one divided by zero. We are legion, we do not forgive, we do not forget. Um, but there's a certain sort of insight there about in a way we're all anonymous online. We have, a, it's a really weird experience in the sense that this, these artifacts, these digital artifacts from 1.4 billion people are sort of floating in through our screens and stuff and we connect with them generally not knowing where they came from. So we're all connecting anonymously in, in many ways and, and not always but, but often so there's an interesting insight there, and it you know it leads to <laughs> that. Now, maybe the most there may, might be most famous for the past year uh, for their uh, sort of protest of Scientology, and there's this great uh, 
great image that you see floating around about this. It says, oh fuck, the internet is here. And <laughs> you can see they're actually, all their sort of playfulness comes out in real life as well when they have these real life meetings. So here's a, actually an, a lolcat sort of spelled out on a banner. And uh, Fox News picked up on this recently and, and just to the great amusement, amusement of 4chaners um, said that they were hackers on steroids. But they're not really, I mean, they are great hackers. And in fact, if you're thinking about visiting 4chan, do it on somebody else's computer. Uh, <laughs> as, uh, the first time I went there, I, I just like, went on to 4chan, and within two seconds, all of my windows just collapsed. My computer turned off and then restarted and informed me that I had a virus and that it, I should download Microsoft Antivirus 2009, which actually doesn't exist. Um, it's, that, that was the virus itself. <laughs> they basically like shut down my computer and then scared me into thinking I have a virus so I would download it. So they, they do all sorts of interesting things like that. Um, <laughs> but uh, what's really interesting is even as a, like they, they are clearly like this really interesting culture, but ultimately they are not a they because everybody's anonymous and you can't really identify who's part of it and who's not. Uh, Chris Landers did a story on them and he found that they are only a group and quote, in the sense that a flock of birds is a group. They're traveling in the same direction. At any given moment, more birds could join, leave, peel off in another direction entirely. And again, like, think of the, the way this sort of reveals so much about the internet everywhere, right? I mean, most internet groups are actually like this in the sense that there's not, they're very rare that there's like these fixed groups that you really belong to in the sense of uh, that sort of tight community. And instead, uh, we're almost like flocking to different things throughout the web. And what's really interesting is where they're going with this. They say, we will stop at nothing until we've achieved our goal, permanent destruction of the identification role. Meaning that they've actually sort of grabbed onto this idea of an anonymity as a virtue. And it goes all the way back to, you know, the 1920s poets like T.S. Eliot were also really into anonymity as an aesthetic ideal. Like they felt like we were becoming too much of a cult of celebrity. And even T.S. Eliot felt like too much of a celebrity. So people would just like flock to him and read his work only because it's T.S. Eliot, not to actually see the work. So T.S. Eliot hated this and actually wanted to be more anonymous. And here we see 90, you know, 80 years later, the same uh, thing, people sort of battling against this cult of celebrity. So they do this in a number of ways. Um, one of the most famous or sort of visually interesting ones is what they do on Second Life. Uh, they have a whole group of people that, that sort of attack Second Life at various times. So. For example, this is, a, this is an event for uh, Aunt Chung, who uh, was sort of the, million, the millionaire Second Lifer. She sort of a, a real estate mogul inside Second Life. And so CNET, CNET set up this very official looking press conference to talk to her about this. And some people on 4chan got together and decided to attack with, <laughs> with flying penises. And this, and just totally disrupted the whole thing, of course. <laughs> now, there's also a famous attack on John Edwards. I don't know if you guys remember this. John Edwards had a Second Life presence, and they attacked that. You can see down at the bottom, they have a little conversation going on. They said, Vegeta, what does the scouter say about his power level? And he says, it's over 9,000, you know. <laughs> so, so they just keep doing this kind of thing. Now, here's the interesting thing is on, you don't have to read this whole thing, but um, just note like the sort of impetus behind this, like the reason why they're doing it. 
Uh, it says, this was posted to the, the uh, John Edwards blog after they had blogged about this. It says, as the internet has grown in popularity, a disturbing phenomenon has occurred. Everyone thinks they are special. We have news for you. You aren't special. You aren't unique. You are a mindless sort of filth traversing the universe on a small ball of dirt. It goes on to say, we are, we are here to remind you of this. Um, down here at the bottom, it says, wherever someone takes themselves too seriously, we will be there. Wherever someone has an inflated ego, we will be there. We will do it through madness, and we will remove you from the high place you have built for yourself. So again, like this sort of attacking um, the internet sort of uh, celebrity narcissism that appears there. One of the most famous examples here is Tay Zonde. I don't know if you guys have seen this. Uh, I'll just play a brief thing to remind you guys. I don't know if you guys would think that this could be a video that would get 33 million views and up and make him a millionaire, <laughs> but, uh, but in fact it's happened. And the reason why is because 4chan, the people on B, sort of to make a mockery of our celebrity, cult of celebrity, they will sometimes actually sort of pick somebody out and launch them to stardom. This is one of those examples. Um, and here you can see it got so popular that YouTube had Tay Zonde Day, in which they, like the whole front page was nothing but Tay Zonde. And if you look it up now, uh, I forget what it is. I, th I think it's in the thousands of remixes of this, uh, you know, the Tay Zonde thing. Now, I think what 4chan is probably most famous for in the last year, though, is this thing here. Wherever someone takes themselves too seriously, they will place a link and this has become a very common thing to do. And you click on that link thinking that it's going to be part of this serious discussion you're having, and you get what's called duck rolled, right? <laughs> and of course, this has transitioned into the Rick Roll, which you guys might remember this. Now, and again, like, you can imagine like, why they would choose this based on their sense of humor and stuff. But here's where it gets interesting. There's all these remixes of it, right? So this is Hugh Atkins. And this is actually... <laughs> this points to something even bigger and more important in the way that this was created. He was actually using a search system on Google that actually indexes every word in every video ever stated by any politician, which allows him to put this thing together. And this means that you know, the, the capacity for making videos is, has now gone up tremendously. Here's John McCain with a blue screen behind him. And of course, this is just too good to pass up. <laughs> All right, so, so what I like, to, I like to think of this as a seriously playful participatory media culture. It's not just like that people are playing around. It's not just like what you see on 4chan where it looks like it's just all a bunch of play. There's also a serious element to this. There's a constant commentary on our culture appearing there. And it's like finally people have a way to talk back and they're using it. And it's not just in terms of like how easy it is to make video and, and create these things that they're doing. 
but also in the ubiquity of video. So for example, <laughs> here's, a, here's John McCain not knowing that he's on camera. An old Beach Boy song, Bob Moran. <laughs> and this is then three days later on YouTube, this gets picked up and made up into several remixes. No apologies, though, for a musical parody that many around the world took as a true sign of his thinking. When veterans are together, veterans joke. And I was with veterans and we were joking. So this is what you might call context collapse, which is happening all over, all over in our environment now, in the sense that you never know where you are, who you're talking to and where you really are because it can be picked up at any time. And uh, here's another example from the advertising world. Um, this is from GM, you'll see here in a second. So GM thought they could leverage this participatory media environment by allowing people to make their own commercials for the GM Tahoe. And you know, it's real easy, one, steps one, two, three, four, and then there you are. And this is what was made, stuff like this. And just to show you how sophisticated this can get, this is, uh, this is a remix obviously using a lot of Hollywood films and repurposing them. And it's set to Regina Spector music. And if you listen to the lyrics, it's a very powerful message. Talking about slightly used parts. And here she says, you know, we're living in a den of thieves, rummaging for answers. And the reason why she's discussing this is because, in fact, the things that she, have, she has done are, should, should not be illegal, but they are in the sense that if she ripped the DVD, it's illegal. And so there are these sort of constraints on our participation, even today. Here's Lawrence Lessig talking about this. We need to recognize you can't kill the instinct the technology produces. We can only criminalize it. We can't stop our kids from using it. We can only drive it underground. We can't make our kids passive again. We can only make them, quote, pirates. And is that good? We live in this weird time, this kind of age of prohibitions, where in many areas of our life, we live life constantly against the law. Ordinary people live life against the law. And that's what I'm, we are doing to our kids. They live life knowing they live it against the law. That realization is extraordinarily corrupt, extraordinarily corrupted. And in a democracy, we ought to be able to do better. So one of my favorite things about this is actually not the video itself, which is amazing and very artistic and a beautiful work, but at the end, uh, you'll see that there's some people comments. You know, there's all these comments on YouTube. And if you read the comments under there, it says, my God, are you doing that for a living? I never saw anything like this. You're an artist. To which you respond, no, I'm a housewife. And, and that's kind of the beauty of YouTube today is, and sort of the environment we have today is that so many people are, in, are enabled to create for a broader public, create these beautiful things.
So there's also the possibility of creating together, right? We see it on Wikipedia, but we also see it even in the video space. And here you see somebody donning the anonymous mask, Mad V here. And he actually invites people to collaborate with him. And I think by being anonymous, he actually becomes sort of a platform for this collaboration. So all he asks is that people put, put a message on their hand and then upload the video. And, and well over 2,000 people did this. And then he was able to take all of these videos and create this final little bit. So this is kind of an interesting moment here to think about what people would reach up to their webcams with, right? So you have one message to put on your hand. You reach up to the web webcam. You'll see, like, I think generally in this age, people are thrilled that they can finally connect with each other across these great distances, right? I mean, there's a certain, at some level, that's just amazing in itself. And then, of course, there's the self-reflection that you saw earlier, the sort of love yourself and that kind of thing. But, you know, also, I think whenever you see messages like this, people deliver messages like this because they don't feel like they have truly come to fruition. So these aren't just saying, like, this is the way things are. This, they're saying, this is the way things should be. This is what we should strive for, and so on. So we're not there yet. This, these are not messages of celebrations as much as, you know, let's do this. So in that context, then, look at like where you guys come in. <laughs> um, so here we are <laughs> on this in this landscape. We have this possibility for a seriously playful participatory culture, but it's enabled by very specific architectures of participation. And every single architecture is actually elicits a different type of participation. And you guys are the ones who are creating these things. Now, I, I only want to spend like two minutes on the future. Now, make it 20 seconds. I'll do this really fast. So instead of like telling you, you know, like details where things are going, I'll just point out that futurists all agree on one trend toward ubiquitous networks, ubiquitous computing, ubiquitous information at unlimited speed about everything everywhere from, from anywhere on all kinds of devices. This is what, like, nobody disagrees with that. I think everybody in here would agree that that's the general trend that we're headed for. And that means that these architectures of participation are increasingly becoming the architectures of our everyday life. It's like archite information architecture is blending with the architecture of the real world, and in fact, blending with sort of the architecture of society itself. And so when you think about information architect, it's not just an architect of information, but an architect of human relations. And that means that you then have this capacity to build architectures for a new future of whatever. If we go back to like where we started here, you know, in the 60s, it was I don't care whatever you think, you know? In the 90s, it became whatever, I don't care what you think. And in the future, we can hope that we can create architectures of participation that will allow people to feel a sense of caring. They'll be able to say, I care. Let's do whatever it takes by whatever means necessary. Thanks. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. 
There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.